This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. Today, my guest is Casey Carmona. She is a former performing arts teacher turned full-time mom to two boys. When her second son was born with a life-threatening critical illness, Casey was forced to surrender herself and her son into the great big hands of love. Casey and her adorable family live in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you, Victoria. I appreciate it. And I just off the bat, before we started recording, um, this is a relatively new loss for you. And so, so thank you for having the courage, because it does take courage to share your story on a, a platform like this, whether it be mine or anyone else's. So I honor that courage in you. And I thank you for sharing your story with me and the listeners. Oh, thank you. There's something about this podcast too of grieving voices. The grief journey is long but necessary is is what I what I share often. And I know I'm new on it. And I'm sure that I, I know I have a long way to go, but where I am now, um I, I do I I do want to share where I am in, in this moment and it will change in the months and years to come. But where I am feels important too. So what brings you to grieving voices? It's it's love. It's love. My son CJ as you shared um he he actually uh, his first birthday would be next month. And he was born with a congenital heart disease called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Essentially, it means that he was growing in me with only half a heart. We thought that that was the worst of it. But the night that he was born, we learned that it was much more. And pretty much every major body system was affected by something. Months later, we would learn that it was because of a single gene deletion. It was a rare genetic syndrome called Kabuki syndrome that caused a multiple abnormalities in his body. And um, and I just say, like, the poor baby had a lot going on. <laughs> you know, like, that's what I would always say. And uh, <laughs> he had a lot going on. And we loved him through it. And we loved, we loved every bit of him. And that that's what brings me here is, is I think grief is figuring out what to do with all the love. And CJ's story is worth being shared. Um, I, I just told somebody it's, it's both 
both CJ's life and death were beautiful, but there was so much life in his death that that really is the part that I want to talk about. We did something pretty wild, I would say. I, I quickly learned that the best way to love my son in the hospital was to advocate. And I, I advocated on every little thing. If he was crying too much, we didn't need to do a temperature check. Just look at, look at him. Oh, but, but the reason why is because they told me if he cried for longer than five minutes, it was bad because, because he only had half a heart. Right. And so, so we couldn't have him even cry. He's a baby though. Babies cry. Like, um, but the, the, the amount of suffering that we saw in the hospital, CJ at three days of life had a 10 hour open heart reconstructive surgery, three day old. Um, he was on ECMO, the heart where the machine that pumps your heart for you for longer than most babies. But he, he just never quite recovered from that surgery. And it's because of uh, so many things. He had three kidneys. He had a cleft palate, so he wasn't able to take feeds. Um, but even still, because of kabuki, he created so much mucus that he wasn't able to even swallow anything into his stomach. Everything went into his intestines. Um, well, we, we had to put a tube into his intestines. Uh, later, it wasn't until we made a pretty critical choice that I'll tell you about um, we learned that his his brain nor his body grew. I, I, I knew he was having trouble gaining weight, but I, I didn't realize his brain never grew. And and just think about what, what that the the implications of that, especially we know that children's brains have to grow in infancy. Essentially as I started advocating of my child needs this, my son needs this, we're going to do every test, every scan with him in my arms because he cries. If you if you are trying to poke and prod and get what you need and you're going to get a better reading with me holding him, you've never done it before? Well, first time for everything. You know, like we just, I did everything that I could. And um, in early May, we we got the the diagnosis of Kabuki syndrome and that that syndrome on top of his severity of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, it just it just didn't it didn't sit well with my husband and myself. At that point, we had seen so much in the hospital and so much suffering that it was hard for us to um, to imagine this to keep going. And at some point, and this is a wild thing for a parent to say, and I hope no parent makes this choice, but I believe that there are parents out there that question it. At some point, death is better than suffering. And that's a, that's a really challenging thing to say out loud. And as a parent to decide that the hope heaven offers will be so much better for my son than what we're doing to him here. And essentially, we, we had already been working with the palliative care team at the hospital. And the, the children's hospital, we were at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Eggleston, and the team is fantastic. They, they are wonderful people. There was a doctor that uh, CJ had 
a really bad episode. I learned later it was his first death contraction. And and the cardiologist that was on staff just didn't know what to do. Cardiologist switched out every week. The new cardiologist came in and she said, listen, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to do, I guess, but we need to do something. So I guess we'll intubate him and put him under for a cath and we'll do that procedure. And the language that the PACT team gave us was, we will do things for our son, CJ, but we will not do things to our son. And when that doctor said, I don't know what else to do, so let's do this, that that was the red flag of we're doing something to him, not necessarily for him. And and so we worked with the PACT team and we brought in hospice care and we said, we're done. I We advocated so strongly. We said, we're bringing this baby home on pediatric hospice care. And let me just tell you, for our family, obviously the hardest, most tragic decision a family could ever make, but it was so beautiful because our son came home. And, and I also have Teddy, who at the time was only 14, 15 months old. And so CJ got to be with Teddy and they they were pretty much together while CJ was in utero. I mean, it was so sweet. The boys, Teddy would climb on my tummy and CJ would kick. And like, the so the boys had this connection. But then to come home and to watch it play out was um, was just so beautiful. And um, for us, even though my son was at home to die, Court and I believe that CJ's life started when he came home. He spent 84 days in the hospital, but those were the days of suffering. There was a freedom that happened when he came home. And it was so beautiful. I mean, the things that as mothers we might take for granted with healthy children, I just, just even just even being able to take a walk outside. he At this point, he was still hooked up to his life supports, but I wasn't able to do that in the hospital. He was connected to a wall. Or um, because of COVID, our family wasn't able to see him. And so uh, within two days of him bringing, bringing brought home, we had people come from Florida to California, to Atlanta, Georgia, to say hello to our son. And we had this beautiful welcome home party and we had food and we had ice cream cake and and all the cousins were there and um, everybody got to say hello. And one of the most incredible gifts that somebody gave us was a photographer. And she just sat in a corner and took these beautiful candids of CJ and his... um, it's, it was really the family that came to support us. Um, not, not all of our aunts and uncles were able to make it, but, but those that came to support us while CJ was in the hospital, we invited back. And, and most of those weren't able to meet him. And so, so they were able to meet him for the first time. And it was, it was raining that day, but, 
but I just remember it being so bright. Like I, we live in a 1920s schoolhouse um, and we have these beautiful 10 foot windows and we just sat, we put, we put the baby recliner and rocker right by the window. And I, I, I don't remember it raining. I just remember it feeling so beautiful and so lovely and so warm in the house that day. And it just felt so good for us all to be together. I think that this is a familiar feeling for those that are um, have loved ones in hospice or loved ones that are going to die or have died. There definitely was a sense of denial, probably the first time that I experienced denial. I mean, because my baby was home, like for the, for the first time he was home, like how great. And I just thought things, how could things go wrong? You know, I mean, this is everything that you could have hoped for. Granted, he was, he was a sick, he was a sick baby. (laughs) He was a sick baby. And it just didn't feel like that. Gosh, my hospice nurse, her name is Lenise Shortell, and she she's also a grief educator, and she she is one of those angels on earth. I mean, just just a walking saint who just who just um, she's a woman so close and dear to my heart. And um, she kept saying, "Where where the giraffe? Uh, where the giraffes that are looking ahead?" And there was one day where she she had to look ahead and say, "All right, I, I think CJ took a." took a bit of a turn. At this point, we were only a weekend to our time on hospice. And um, Court was at work. I told Court to come home. And um, at that point, we we made plans. We, we did a family photo shoot. And and we got all dressed up. And all my boys are in white shirts. And I borrowed a dress from a girlfriend that was gorgeous. And, and I had a friend come and um, she did my hair and makeup for me. So I felt really good. And that was such a weird day because I was like, I can't, I, I'm spending time getting ready and feeling pretty. Well, I only have minutes left with my son. I only have moments left. I only have hours left. I only have days left. Like this, this feels so weird. And, and it, the photographer that took the candid photos. Her name is Joy. She came back. She she was so kindly came back to take these photos. And and both Joy and my dear friend Emily were there and they just were like, no, this is you'll want these for the rest of your life. Take take the 30 minutes. <laughs> like you're okay. You're still a good mom <laughs> to to put some makeup on and to you know put a comb through your hair. <laughs> like but but I, I but I do remember that of like this feels very vain to me. And I, I actually, today, my, my son, Teddy, went to go point at one of the photos that we took from that day. And, and I did just think to myself today, and this is a vain thought, but, but, but goes along with what I'm saying here of like, gosh, I looked so pretty that day. And, um, and I'm just so grateful for other people to speak in and say, take a moment for yourself here. And it's okay. Anyways, we, we took these photos and they're, they are, they, they represent, they represent so much of the life that CJ had and their smiling faces. And, and my son, he looks so beautiful. He's, his cheeks are full and, and he's got his little curly hair because I wet it before we took the photos. So those hair had those perfect black ringlets. And, and we, we took photos throughout our beautiful property that we live on. And, um, and it was a good morning. Um, we took a nap after because it was uh, it was tiring. <laughs> and then after CJ's nap, something changed. And um, 
it's it's a little too painful to even go into it all, and I won't because of the trauma that is still there. But I'll say that the hospice team came in and essentially said, today's the day. Today's the day. It's time uh, to take your son off life support. It's time to take him off. For CJ, it was oxygen, and he had that NJ tube. So I was I was exclusively pumping, which is amazing. So my breast milk was going straight to his intestines. And and this is this to me is where life and death are on this wonderful continuum. And sometimes it's hard to see it as a black and white thing. Because this this is really where we started to see all that we can do in CJ's life. When you know you have, at this point, minutes, hours left. And so what do you do? What do you do when you have one, potentially one last night with the person that you love? And for us, we, um, we made a family masterpiece. We got out the paint. <laughs> we got out a big a big canvas board we went outside it was may and it was gorgeous and we we put different colored paints on on a piece of paper or a, i think it was a paper plate um my son teddy had blue paint i had the green paint court had gray and little cj had red and we just stamped with our feet <laughs> on this canvas and together we made we made our family masterpiece it's the most beautiful thing hanging up in our home and it because it's the thing that we can point to and say we were all together this is the time of our life where we all shared where we were all present This is us. This is us. This is where love combined. It was a beautiful moment. We have a meal together. And and uh and then that's when we that's when we uh we, we put Teddy to sleep. We brought, we had Teddy kiss his brother goodnight. And, um, and then we, we took CJ off of his life supports. And that night was, was a dark night. You, um, you don't want to go to sleep because you don't know what's going to happen. My husband laid on one side of the bed. I laid in the other and CJ was in a, one of those um swaddle me's like a little a little baby nest um he was sleeping right next to us and you know you just you put your head right next to his and and you keep your eyes open even though they're they're fluttering shut you just you 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 got to stay awake but you, at some point you can't and so so we fell asleep and that next morning 
miracle of miracles. That baby was still alive. <laughs> he was still alive. We couldn't believe it. Um, but at this point, he he wasn't looking good, right? Like, I mean, sweet boy. Uh it was it was wild. And um and his breathing was so shallow and uh and it was hard that that morning we um court's aunt auntie helen uh teddy and cj called her oma oma was living with us and we had oma take teddy we just were like teddy needs to you guys can't see this this is too too sad too dark we we stayed actually in in this bedroom right here and um too much hospice finally came. I mean, talk about an intimate moment uh, for your hospice doctor and Lenise, the hospice nurse, that's the angel, to sit on your bed with you and and your dying son. I, that is intimate. And, um, and they said, yeah, it, it's, it's tonight. It's tonight. And we, I just, at that point was like, I, I, you, you don't realize that death is going to be so difficult. And so I'm like, you just want him to die as fast as possible at that point. And um, I, it was just so hard to watch a breath, no breath. I mean, it was wild. It was wild. And um, and Lanise said, I, I know you want to protect Teddy in this, but I just think Teddy needs his brother, CJ, and CJ needs his brother, Teddy. And I think Teddy needs to say another goodbye. And I think they need to be together. And I was like, how do you let a little baby see this? How do you let a baby see this? This is going to be wild. But, but I believe it. I believe it. I hear you. I believe it. And so, so we called back Oma and said, come back. We all need to be together. We need to be together. And, um, but we kept CJ in the back room. At that point, Court and I had said our goodbyes. We had made our peace. We had sang songs. Court is an incredible musician. So brought out the guitar, played the piano. I mean, we were doing, I had read over CJ. I mean, just, we said our prayers. I mean, just had done everything. So so we, we had made our peace. And Oma came and made her peace too. We go to bed that night, same thing of like, you don't want to go to bed. Like, but at some point you do. And the next morning, this baby was still alive. And so I told court, I said, Thursday, that Thursday was CJ's, what I call his dying day, where he's, we had him in the back room, but we're not going to do that anymore. Like, it's too sad. It's not our son. Our son is a child of life and love. And so we brought him out into the living room. And this, this is where life and death swirled in my living room. And I am here to tell you, this is where CJ's life was absolutely beautiful. Because at this point, we really didn't know if every breath was going to be his last. And so we, we cherished every minute. And because he was off his oxygen supports, this is where we got to have fun. So we we put both boys in strollers and we went outside and did stroller races. And and we we had Teddy push his brother around in a stroller 
because that's what you do with a normal baby. And we got out the kiddie pool and we, we, CJ wasn't going to be able to be in a pool, but, but he was able to watch his brother be in a pool and splash around. And, and we were able to have dance parties where wires didn't get in the way. And Court was able to hold CJ without the wires and play piano with one hand. And, and, and we were able to bring CJ in to the bathroom for for bath time and, and just all the really wonderful normal stuff that once again moms and young moms and dads take for granted or get frustrated because they have multiple children and here we were so grateful for every moment that we were we would hold CJ and Teddy would come and climb into our laps too and give CJ kisses on the forehead and and this is this is heaven on earth this is heaven on earth. I've experienced it. I've lived it. My son has lived it. My son lived it so much that he was, he, we were told he was going to go Friday, but he didn't go on Friday. He didn't go on Saturday. He didn't die on Sunday. He didn't die on Monday. We had these in total six days of glorious life and but but it was wild my son's organs started shutting down and and he would he was smelling he was decaying he uh, rigor mortis set in on his tongue i mean like it was you're holding <laughs> you're holding a mostly dead baby i i joked around I'm a big fan of the Princess Bride, and there's this scene where, um, uh, where, where the man in black is dead, and Billy Crystal says, "You thought he was dead, but he's only mostly dead." And uh, <laughs> my son was only mostly dead um, because there was a part of him that just kept living. He was only taking two breaths every five minutes, and he did that for six days. But because we had set our peace, because we were in this fullness and richness of life and death, that anxiety that I think we feel, I think it's natural to feel when a loved one is going to die, is dying. I didn't experience it because I was so focused on the present. And that is what the present can do for us, is that when we're so focused on the present moment and the life that we have in that present moment, it's just like everything goes away. Everything goes away. And that is a gift that we, we do not have to have somebody who is dying to tap into. <laughs> but but it, it does take practice to be present. And, and it's, it is one of the gifts that my son has given me. Tuesday morning came along and the, and the, the energy changed. The energy changed. It, it, um, it felt like that was the day. Um, it felt like we were kind of living on this bonus time and, and, and it was, it was finally time. And I did something that I, I hadn't done before. When CJ was growing in me, I felt 
this compelling sense to journal. And that morning, I read through essentially these love letters to my son. It took an hour, but I read every single one to him, chronicling out the love that I've had from him since really the beginning, but, but I started the journaling at his diagnosis at 22 weeks. And I just wanted him to know, like, I have loved you. I do love you. And I will always love you. And if there's one thing that I'm for sure of, I have to have faith that there is a heaven. I, I have to have faith that I'll see my son. But I do know without a, without a doubt that love never ends. And wherever my son is now, he is in love. He's in the hands of love. And that I know. That I know. Because I was his hands of love. And then I, I let it go. And my son finally did take his last breath. It was Tuesday, May 25th. It had all worked out. We had just, just put Teddy down for his nap. He got to say goodnight to, to his brother. And just 10, 20 minutes after that, CJ did take his last breath. You know, I said this earlier in the podcast, your love has to go somewhere. And the love for my son was was so selfless, so vast, so deep. It it kept it kept going and going. And it's something that I I'm not sure I can take credit for. I, I, I believe that the source of love, for me, that's God, was the great well that sprung up on a moment-by-moment basis for me to get out of myself and to truly put everything I have into the life and the death of my son. And so now I'm I'm coming to terms with with what I did. <laughs> and and that's a process in itself. And it's a good one. It's a good one. But it is long <laughs> and at times difficult. It's one that I I don't regret and I would do over and over again too. Y'all can't see me, but <laughs> I have been crying this whole time. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Thank you. It's tragic. But every death is tragic. It's all tragic. Every loss is tragic. I want to highlight highlight something you said, but I got to grab more tissues. It takes... um, It takes courage to share your story, but it takes courage to face death, but embracing it, not shutting it in the back room. And if there's anyone listening to this right now, there is such a gift in facing 
in embracing death in an opportunity that could be missed when you shut it out. And if there's anything that my death doula training taught me and in watching my own father die, is that giving yourself and your loved ones, like your little boy, the opportunity to grieve with you, that was such a gift you gave him. So I'm so glad that you had that mentor there and that guide to share that with you because that is a moment. And people might say, he won't remember that. He will. And I will say that he will. He will. And, and, and well, I, it's going to live in his body. And I've, it, sweet Teddy struggled a lot this summer and, and so did I, right? And, um, and there's, there's organizations here in Atlanta, Georgia that we've already tapped into and his pediatrician knows the story and, and we'll watch Teddy for his whole life. Um, and uh, uh, because I, it was a beautiful death. He still saw death at a young age, but, but to your point, my hope is that it's not a scary thing that that's so many of us believe it to be, and rightfully so. I mean, it, it, there there are aspects of it that are scary, but but by embracing CJ's death, we we created this beautiful death, and I I there was so much life in his death. But but that was CJ. Like CJ just kept hanging on. Like he he brought the life, and so you answered his call. It was like <laughs> look how many look at these legacy projects and in, in end of life doula training. When we'd work with a family on hospice, it, it's the idea of involving the whole family to create a legacy project. That's what you've done. That's what you did. And you have this beautiful memento and kudos to that photo- that friend who got the photographer. I used to be a photographer Gosh. for doing that. What a gift. What a thoughtful what a gift. So if you listening to this and you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help you. You're, you're listening to ideas today. Like hear this, you know? But this wasn't the first loss for you. Was it? No. And it wasn't the last. So what had that experience? What has CJ taught you about grief and about life and and all that? It is. Mm. I've allowed myself to feel every single thing I need to feel. If something bubbles up, I don't push it down. I don't say I'll get to it later. I just let it come. Lenise, the grief educator, shared emotion is you got to move it through. And so I I am choosing to move it all through. And so I I am grateful for those that are willing to sit in the sad with me, but also we can have some good moments together. And I I think learning about well learning about my own grief i i am somebody who's pretty external and so writing has been helpful talk therapy has been helpful um sharing cj's story has been helpful these things have have really uh, given me insight 
more insight into to who I am and and also but but how how CJ's life has affected more people than what I realize and um yeah I think before CJ was born it was Valentine's Day and I wrote a letter to him and there's a line in that letter that I've been thinking about a lot recently and I wrote part of living the abundance of life is experiencing loss we choose to tap into that abundant life and that's it's, that's just a thing it's abundant and when it's growing and it's so much and it's so full of course of course there's going to be loss for me it was how quickly did i accept that loss i for me i've learned the sooner that i can accept a loss the faster i can get on with the grieving process that's that's how it has worked for me and because when you wrestle with the why when you wrestle with some of these existential questions that you might not ever get answers i found you're just delaying the inevitable of the accepting and then the healing process can begin and when we realize when we're choosing to tap into this abundant life there's going to be loss but loss a loss is always going to be hard but because something is hard doesn't mean that it has to be bad there can be good it doesn't mean that it is good but there can be good in it and that that's a perspective that's a choice to make it is not good that i lost my son that is tragic and it is so sad but we found good in the loss and i think it's because we accepted what was happening and it allowed us the freedom to just be present and to feel all the feels and at that moment when my those 6 days while my son was mostly dead i will i will say i buried everything pretty deep but i but i purposely did that because i i wanted my son to have the absolute best and and i think that's also something that we do as mothers we we regulate we choose when when to be vulnerable and when to show what we need to show and and that wasn't the right time and and I, i'm i'm proud of that choice i'm i'm proud that i made that choice um but now as teddy is watching me grieve he watches me cry and he watches me struggle and i i just say mommy's sad i miss your brother because i want him to know i want him to know that this is part of living the abundant life that we're in cord and i weekly say we have such a good life and i think that there's probably people out there that would say woe is me and i i say to you but there's still so much good out there that you just do you have eyes to see it a heart to believe it i think that's what grief has taught me more than anything else is that there's still so much good despite the hard What kind of questions has Teddy asked, or things that he's well, not shared? yeah, not too many. He's he's going to be two. Oh gosh, this month. Um, so so he's he hasn't really asked questions, but he'll point 
he'll point to CJ a lot. We, we have pictures of him up and um, we have our masterpiece painting hanging up. And so he'll point to that every night before we, as we tuck Teddy in, as we say nighty night and we love you, we go like this. We put our hand over our hearts and we say CJ's in our hearts. And so if you, if you asked Teddy where CJ, he'd go like this. He'd put his mm-hmm. hand over his heart. And um, I'm sure the time will come where he'll start asking. Uh, Lenise suggested the book, The Invisible String. And so we read that regularly. Uh, and there's a part where it says, or talks about um, the uncle in heaven. And we, we say CJ in heaven. Um, and so we are an open family about it. And I am, I'm really thankful for that. And I, I use the D word, I use die, because I also think that's important too, especially for, for sweet Teddy, who, you know, children take things so literally. And so if we, if we use certain language, I, I want Teddy to, to not be afraid of sleeping or loss, but but knowing like this is this is death. Well, and not only that, but um, if you don't share the truth, they make up their own stories. Mm. And as they mm. grow, they'll make up their own stories. Wow. So it's very important that you be honest and truthful to the to the extent that in language they can understand at the time. Mm. Okay, that's um, good to know. What gives you the most hope for the future? Hmm. I've been feeling that the spirit of CJ is the spirit of generosity. And his life gave so much to so many. And I hope that we can be generous with the help of our friends and family and, and do some kind deeds, especially for the children's hospital here in Atlanta in memory and in honor of CJ. That that gives me hope. Do you want to share a little bit about, because for those that may not be familiar with Kabuki, because I'm not, right? Is that what it? Yeah, yeah, good yeah. memory. Um, yes. How rare is it? Um, is it genetic? It's a genetic syndrome, yes. And uh, it it's genetic syndrome. It was de novo in CJ, which means new to him. However, if somebody does have Kabuki syndrome, and and maybe it's a mild case, they don't realize it, that it can, of course, be passed along. It is very rare. It's, I think, 0.032% chance of a child getting it. And it was a fluke accident. It was, it was, uh, Unlucky is what doctors say. And it caused this one genetic gene deletion caused a slew of issues in my son. And it's just wild to think about one tiny gene was missing. And it just, it just makes you pause and reflect on the miracle of humans, childbirth, <laughs> babies. I mean, there's just so much like, gosh. Uh, so anyways, the, the syndrome itself, it's called Kabuki because the children typically have these 
big eyes that um, kind of are slanted a little bit and these big, beautiful eyelashes. And it was named from Japanese doctors who thought these children looked like an art form, a theater form in Japan called kabuki. And so it's named after this, this theater tradition that the traditional makeup is big eyes and big eyelashes. Um, and so, so CJ had the big eyelashes, uh, but, but actually it's a, it's a Carmona feature too. So there, it's so funny. There was so much where we were like, is that Carmona or, or is it just Kabuki? You know, um, it's hard to, hard to know anyways. So, so it, it is very rare. And one of the things that helped us make our decision is in literature in medical literature, the cardiologist that also dealt with um, genetics could only find 12 cases in all of medical literature history of children that had both hypoplastic left heart syndrome and Kabuki. 12. Wow. I'm sure there's more out there, but, but only 12 had been written up. The odds were not good for us. It was, uh, it was essentially five did what we ultimately chose to do and said, we're done with palliative care surgeries. Seven did not live. And then three tried to do the next round of surgery, but, but also, um, and I guess had lived, but maybe didn't live up until like eight. Um, and so that, that helped inform our decision. And because it was just so rare for the two, uh, Kabuki syndrome can cause heart defects, but hypoplastic left heart syndrome is the most, I know most is, is it, it is one of the top in severity of, of heart defects. And so that, that is kind of the, the Mac daddy of them all. Um, for, for this case of a genetic um, uh, abnormality of the heart. And uh, anyways, so, so there, there are several families out there. I'm, I'm in a Kabuki parent support group. There, there are several families out there that, that have children that are, are, that are doing as well as they can with Kabuki. I, I personally look at those families and I see how hard it is. And uh, there, there is a part of me that, that is grateful that we did not keep our son alive just to keep him alive. That is a very difficult statement. And I know that is incredibly controversial. And um, it's just for our family, we chose quality over quantity. And I think the hospital would have kept CJ alive for a long time. Um, and I, I look at some of these children and, and, you know, CJ wasn't having seizures just quite yet, but the seizures were going to start. And it's just, it's just so hard. It's just, and you know, he would never be able to eat. I mean, just like, and with his brain not growing, he, um, he would obviously have, some severe challenges to do any normal 
quote unquote normal <laughs> functioning um, thing. So, yeah, I my heart goes out to those families because it is it is a it's so hard and it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile. Like it's so it's beautiful and it's I know that they're doing the best that they can. And there's this like. It's just, I think, I think for me, it's just hard to watch children suffer. It's just hard to watch children suffer. Dr. Chris Kerr was on my podcast a while back and he's a hospice um, doctor, physician, Mm. and has researched end of life experience Mm. among those in hospice care. And he was talked very openly about how the medical community medicalize dying and how society overall medicalizes dying. And so that made me think of you sharing that. And I, I had that question in my thought, in my mind, and you went right to it in, hmm. and, um, in your story and ultimately ended up bringing him home um, hmm. to have a good death, really. Mm-hmm. And that's what he talked about in that episode and how, again, there are opportunities to really embrace that process rather than medicalizing it and having an experience of separation and like you said, denial, trying to throw everything but the kitchen sink at something that is inevitable, you know, in the medical field too, it's like, you're not supposed to do harm. And I think as human beings, the spirit within us, it's really hard to ask ourselves in those moments, like what would I want? And then do that for your loved one. Right? Yeah. So what would you like to scream to the world? You had a microphone and had it. Oh man, I think you just said it. For me, it's it's if you are in a place where just things are not going right and you can see the writing on the wall, no one told us to bring that baby home. No one, no one in the hospital told us to do that. It's what we felt CJ needed to have that beautiful death. And because we were tired of throwing everything but the kitchen sink at at my son's life and and not getting anywhere and then just seeing him more more hurt, more poked and prodded and tested and and um, our 15 days at home were so beautiful. And I I wish if there are families that that are wanting that or thinking that they can do that too but but it requires acceptance of really what's coming it requires a good team around you that you can trust and talk through i mean a, for us that palliative care team at the hospital was really important and and it requires this very selfless love to to put all your feelings on hold and and to give trusting that deep well is going to supply what you need and it will that's what love does so i i really i really hope that there are there are people out there that that might be afraid of death or afraid of the inevitable or or afraid of what's to come but in practicing the present and being joyful in the moment because that is what we have right now there is beauty and there is good. And the now is all we have really and to embrace it fully is that abundance of life. 
beautiful message. Is there anything else that you would like to share about any other losses that you've that have been shaped by this experience, maybe that were different or anything about CJ you'd like to share? Anything? Hmm. You know, I think for today, I think this is what I needed to share for today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Beautiful story of life and loss of CJ. But as you shared, he lives on in your hearts and no one can ever take that. Mm -hmm. Again, thank you so much for sharing Mm. your story today. I think I might need to take a walk and be in the present moment for a little while. Yeah. Very beautiful share. So thank Thank you so much. And where can people reach you if they would like to find more about you and connect? I I'm on Instagram right now. Um, It's just my first and last name and, or on Facebook too. It's Casey Carmona. Um, Both of those would be great. Okay. I will put the link in the show notes. Okay. Thanks. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.